This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and today I'm joined by Lee Hutchison. Hi, Lee. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. I think we're the only people that are not going to be discussing Star Trek Lower Decks on premiere day, so I feel like we're an outlier in Star Trek fandom today. You're right, absolutely. I mean, who knows when this episode uh, will drop. We may well have seen the entire series by then, uh, possibly even legally by that point. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right, it's it's strange to be recording on a, a momentous day for Star Trek, but a, a slightly tricky one um, outside the United States, I suppose, because, uh, you, you know, yeah, many of us have seen this new show, even if we possibly weren't supposed to have. Exactly. Our hands are sort of tied here. It's it's one of those ones you can always access something through the net access, really, I guess. Well, um, yeah, we're not talking about Lower Decks uh, today. We're talking about uh, something quite different. Basically, what I wanted to look at in this episode is, I suppose, what you call a trope. It's a sort of TV trope. It's a literary trope. Um, it's one that goes back. I mean, we could sort of talk about where it goes back to. I think probably the most famous sort of early example of this might be Alice in Wonderland, but it's basically the the trope of, and then I woke up and it was all a dream. Stories where one version of reality seems to be being presented and then uh, the rug is kind of pulled out from under you at the end when you discover that everything you've been watching uh, actually never happened. And it's a trick that Star Trek pulls quite a few times, actually, in one way or another. I think with kind of varying degrees of success. But the episode that I really thought we might start by looking at, because this was the one that kind of uh, inspired this topic idea, really, is The Search, or specifically The Search Part 2 from Deep Space Nine, uh, because The Search Part 1 takes place fairly conventionally within sort of real uh, space and time and reality. But The Search Part 2 pretty much from the very beginning, actually. I mean, I think the switch, we could talk about this with a lot of these stories, you know, where, where does the switch happen? And is it sort of in any way signposted or is it kind of actually unclear where it happened? But in the case of the search, it's really between the two episodes, the switch takes place to the extent that so much of the search part two that we see is actually uh, stuff that never happened. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I always think of the search part one as one of the the highlights of of Deep Space Nine for me. But that second part just I I I'm with it really up until till the end, and it just feels 
kind of frustrating. It promises so much. The Dominion are finally here. It's different, I suppose, if you've kind of can binge the show because you've only got to wait that little bit longer. Um, but if you're kind of a, one of these fans that are watching about the time, you think, oh, that's kind of could be a promising show, this tension between the Dominion, you know, Deep Space Nine, you know, Federation Pacts, all the kind of politics. We kind of get everything condensed into sort of 40 minutes and then it's sort of taken away from us and we almost don't know if we're ever going to get it back again or if it's some real exciting promise that's going to be failed to be fulfilled. It's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, I certainly remember watching this episode in original broadcast and feeling pretty fed up uh, at the end of it. And I think, and a lot of people, you, you know, other Star Trek fans that I talked to at school the next day were equally feeling slightly cheated by this episode. I mean, it's an interesting one. I was just looking at my Deep Space Nine companion and there's... um an interesting perspective on it from Iris Stephen Bear, who I think was slightly blindsided in a way by that response. It's not really what he was expecting. I'll just read you what he said, because I think it gives quite an interesting sort of perspective on what they were going for with that kind of bait and switch and how it ended up being sort of interpreted by the fans and by viewers. Okay, so what Iris Stephen Bear says is, we like to use the first part to set something up and then totally subvert the audience's expectations in part two, which obviously is something that comes up in DS9, again, with the two-parters. Uh, so the first half of the search was conceived of as a big action show, and the bulk of part two was really devoted to Odo's personal story. But of course, what we see on screen is, as you say, all this kind of political shenanigans and all this kind of quite exciting stuff about treaties and, and so on, the kind of stuff that DS9 you know, he's kind of going to get into. Um, and what the companion then goes on to say is it says, of course, not everyone interpreted part two as Odo's story, certainly not the viewers who got entirely wrapped up in the perils apparently experienced by Cisco and the others back on the station. Um, however, once again, they can blame those sneaky writers for attempting to subvert their focus. And Iris Stephen Bear says, it was a perverse need to have some fun with the audience. We were going to show them the worst nightmare as the only way out of that second episode. And then suddenly with the finesse of a magician opening a box to reveal that the contents have vanished, they would reveal to viewers, hey, that's not what this story is about. It's really about Odo. That's the storyline you should be watching. The plot is not important. It's all just fireworks and mirrors. Uh, and then they say bear size in resignation. We wanted to make a point that this was a drama about people in conflict on a much smaller level, but no one seemed to get it. So maybe it wasn't such a great idea. Um, and then they go on to talk about this idea. Was this basically just a variant of the it was all a dream scenario? Uh, and Ira Bear again said, I never thought of it as a dream. It was implanted thoughts. And there's something more. Uh, he said that he thinks there was something more sort of threatening about that. The idea that the founders could play with reality um, to that extent. So basically, I suppose he saw it as almost a bit of a magic trick, as a bit of a kind of clever bit of writing. And I suppose it, it is clever in the sense that it it does lead you down that rabbit hole and then uh, kind of reveals that you've been wrong footed. I think though it it does it's never sat all that well with me and I think part of it is that there's no but partly there's no clue really they, they they don't give you an opportunity to think oh I should have missed that there were kind of clues along the way there's there's nothing like that partly the characters in the dreamlike scenario never realize that it's only found out because Odo and Kira walk in and discover them all hooked up to those machines so there's not even the satisfaction you get usually when Star Trek does these stories there are kind of clues along the way. If you think of something like Future Imperfect, um, there are all these little slightly odd moments or slightly kind of, um, it is imperfect in that sense. You know, there are, there are kind of imperfections in the, in the fiction, in the kind of scenario. 
and you get the satisfaction of that character who's going through it eventually seeing through it so you get Riker has that great scene where he tells Picard to shut up and he kind of calls them all out and says this is a load of rubbish you know um similarly in say Inquisition Bashir gets that great moment where he he suddenly realizes that they're all fake and they're not um who they say they are it's the kind of you know it's the it's a fake meme it's the kind of it's that moment that people get of that kind of it's a fake you know my reality is 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 not what it seems to be and I think maybe the fact that you don't get that anywhere in this episode I suppose it makes sense if the writers were seeing it as Odo's episode that you don't get any of that because all of this stuff is is almost just a distraction but I think for the viewer who sat through it it doesn't feel like that it feels like this was quite significant and important yeah, I think the one thing that sort of gives it away a little bit is how quickly everything moves in that storyline in terms of, right, the Federation are going to move, there's going to be this treaty signed, everything kind of kind of just continues to just snowball at quite an accelerated rate, which we're not used to in something like Deep Space Nine in particular, which is quite slow and meditative when it comes to sort of its, its big plot moves. So you're kind of thinking like, oh, this is kind of big and oh this person i think there's the element of when you you see someone killed as well you think okay i don't think they would have done that that's true when they kill garrick that's quite a big uh you're thinking wow did they just but but then you think you know maybe that's ds9 being really bold you know yeah i think always think with i suppose it's that star trek always has there's always something potentially up its sleeve and i think in these types of it was all a dream kind of episodes there's always some sort of little gimmick up its sleeve whether it's a a lonely alien boy actually someone was just in a transporter for eight seconds it can kind of subvert the trope in terms of oh we don't have to make it just a dream we can have it be some sort of macguffin or it's some sort of test it seems that they move away from the idea that, oh, these things ever happen through, you know, Dr. Bashir goes to sleep one night, wakes up the next day and, oh my God, that was a crazy dream last night. They've got something up their sleeve and it's sometimes successful in terms of what the MacGuffin is to, to kind of have this plot or sometimes it's just like, oh, that that's it. You know, it, it I think this one is an interesting idea ultimately with the Dominion and the founders sort of testing how would the Federation respond to this and I think we get a pretty good insight and that's something that kind of largely bears out over the, the next four years of the show so I find that relatively interesting but it's ultimately just slightly frustrating in that singular episode but over the the grand piece of Deep Space Nine it doesn't feel as frustrating well I think one of the interesting questions that we could maybe think about uh, as we talk through some of these episodes is what is it that makes it work sometimes and not work other times? Because I think there are Star Trek episodes that fall at least broadly into this category that are among, you know, the finest installments of the franchise that are kind of, you know, gold-plated classics that sort of play with these ideas of, of reality and fantasy and, uh, and so on. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of, uh, kind of slightly knee-jerk prejudice against, you know, the idea of a reset button, the idea of a story that uh, is is sort of allowed to play. And I think this kind of is what's happening with the search to some extent. It feels like they're allowed to kind of raise the stakes. They're allowed to kill off Garrick. They're allowed to kind of do all this uh, big sort of global stuff um, to do with, you know, the Federation and the Dominion and the Romulans and all this stuff. And then somehow they can do all of that because it's all going to be swept away and reset at the end of the episode and actually none of that ever happened. Is it to do with a sort of understood contract between the viewer and the writer uh, and it's when we feel like that contract has been violated somehow that we get a little bit 
pissed off and kind of think, you know, yeah, this, I, I don't accept this somehow. Uh, but there are other episodes which find ways of kind of doing similar things, but maybe, you know, maybe, I mean, I think Future Imperfect's a good example because I would say that's a, a more successful episode. I don't personally like the reveal that it's this lonely alien, to be honest. I'm, I kind of prefer when it seems like it's a Romulan plot. I, I like that kind of reveal, um, which is closer to, I guess, what you get with DS9 in Inquisition. But are there ways of doing these stories that where it feels like the reader, or not the reader, where it feels like the viewer is kind of being taken along for the ride rather than just being presented something kind of under false pretenses? I think it's interesting to kind of think of it sort of even as a sort of production side there. It kind of came to me there that something like Future Imperfect, season four, you, some would argue that's next generation's peak. You know, you've had the success of season three, best of both worlds comes along, season four, probably one of the highest hit ratios of successful and popular episodes. Future Imperfect comes along, it's an enjoyable episode. Whereas Deep Space Nine, a very sort of different show at that point. You've now got Next Generation off the air. Voyager is months away on the horizon. And Deep Space Nine is sort of struggling in that first two seasons to to bring over the audience from something like um, Next Generation. And people are more excited probably about Generations on the Horizon. And then you've got these kind of interesting couple of episodes. You've got Jem Hadar, this family drama that turns into this epic that has a galaxy-class starship destroyed. Then you've got The Search Part 1, brings along the Defiant. There's Romulans involved, cloaking devices, all out action. And you may be thinking, oh, this could be a, a twist and a turn here. And then you go into The Search, where it's, again, it's so much promise and excitement. And then it feels like, oh, that could have been an exciting kind of way to take this show oh, I'm a bit disappointed in that. I feel like that could have been a more exciting Deep Space Nine to go down with this conflict with Vorta, Federation, how Starfleet reacts to something like this that we ultimately were going to get. But I can imagine at the time audience members feeling like, oh, I think I can see a better TV show to be had here and Deep Space Nine is failing to sort of, you know, bring me in. Well, the weird thing is, ironically, they are almost giving you a taste of the show that they could do. And maybe that was part of it. It is kind of almost a dry run for the sort of politics of the Dominion War. Um, but then it's kind of, you know, it's a bit of a cop out and it doesn't, doesn't sort of go anywhere. Almost maybe it's a little bit of a tease, a bit like, you know, with Year of Hell in Voyager, they teased that the year before with the episode before and after, which had, you know, similarly, I suppose, was a bit of a reset button episode insofar as, uh, it kind of, I, I guess you you get these episodes that work in different ways. Sometimes they go into the future, like Future Imperfect. Um, sometimes they take place in a sort of continuous present. I mean, I think Future Imperfect is also quite enjoyable to watch. I, I guess part of it is about the pleasure, isn't it? It's about the pleasure the audience gets in seeing things the same but different. So Future Imperfect, there's a real pleasure in that. Uh, maybe the thing with the search is we don't realise that it's different. We think that we're seeing the kind of every day. Whereas, you know, even with something like Future Imperfect, okay, there's a possibility that it's genuine. And interestingly, when Star Trek does these stories again, with something like uh, The Visitor, Twilight, you know, these other episodes that kind of take place in the the future of the lives of the characters, those are episodes that have to have a reset button in order to undo it. But they're not fantasies. They are These are genuine futures, but they're futures that kind of get wiped. And, and I guess some of the same questions come up about, you know, how do we feel about these all these uh, scenarios that Star Trek gives us and then deletes, uh, 
whether it's in that way, whether it's, you know, something like Course Oblivion in Voyager, where I think they make real drama out of the fact that it gets deleted mm. um, and that that story gets sort of lost to, to time somehow. Um, maybe in the search, they just quite hadn't quite worked out how to sort of balance that. I was thinking, I mean, I, I said part of it was they don't give you any clues along the way. There is one clue that they drop in a couple of times, but it's extremely subtle, which is the first part of the search, I think, opens with this discussion all about military simulations. And then later on, uh, Dax is talking about how many probability studies uh, the Federation have run. And obviously, later on in the Dominion War, we get that episode, Statistical Probabilities, which is all about kind of uh, trying to second guess what's going to happen in the war and so on. And in some ways, that is what the Dominion are doing here. It's a form of kind of intelligence gathering that they're sort of running this simulation to see how will people behave to see what the likely sort of outcomes will be. So maybe thematically it is sort of set up. It just, to me, it doesn't feel like it's set up in sort of within the story in the way that in Future Imperfect, there are those little clues. Um, something like, I don't know. I mean, another interesting example, I think, or an, another relevant example might be Ship in a Bottle, which is an episode, again, of Next Gen that kind of, it does this trick of sort of pulling the rug out from under you and revealing that actually they were on the holodeck when they thought they were on the ship. That's an episode where I think it works very well. And I was, um, I did a episode of Trek ranks a few months ago, uh, with Clara about top, top five Star Trek WTF moments, basically. And I, and I said in that discussion, this is one of the very first episodes of Star Trek that I remember watching because I was completely blown away by this kind of mind-bending trick that the episode had pulled. You know, I'd been watching it, I'd been going along with the story, and then it suddenly reveals that this whole chunk of the story that we thought was happening was not real and was actually a trick. But I think it worked in that episode um, because, I suppose, because they sort of set up the parameters somehow. And even in elementary data, they've kind of set up some of the... Um, some of these ideas about what's real and what isn't. There's a kind of thematic link there to do with the reality of, of the world outside the holodeck versus the unreality of the holodeck and so on. And the fact is, as much as it does seem like what we're seeing on screen is really happening, we have been told right at the beginning that what's happening is impossible and that it breaks a sort of fundamental rule of, you know, physics and reality. Uh, so in some ways you might think, well, you're kind of stupid for believing it. It, you know, everyone's sort of going along with it because they're trusting their senses until the point where data realizes there's something up. But, um, you sort of look back on it and you think, well, yeah, of course, why, you know, why did we think that, that this was really happening? Clearly there had to be another explanation and we were kind of just swept along with it all. So I think in that episode, it works very well because it's sort of, um, the fantasy is, is sort of seductive. You do get sucked into it, but at the same time, you should have recognized that it wasn't possible that it must have been a fake at some level even if you can't see the joins and you've got this master villain behind it all in terms exactly. of moriarty yeah. as well i mean to pull on one of your threads that i kind of was thinking of there when you think talked about sort of the you have something like the search where iris stephen bear and some of the fans are like oh that's kind of a maybe a bit of a misfire or a bit of a mistake but ultimately, it doesn't seem to get the same sort of reflection where you hear something like Year of Hell, another thing where it plays out this alternative history that gets wiped and reset, where you hear it now where there's interviews with people like Brian Fuller, Brandon Braga, people that were involved in the show where they're like, you know what, we really wanted to do this as a year. It was frustrating. We could have 
pitched it to the actors. Everyone was really excited for it. And then it kind of doesn't happen. And you almost get the impression with something like The Search, you can have that kind of misfire if you ultimately deliver on the promise in some way with your your show and have that kind of high quality. Whereas with kind of Voyager, you think, well, they had this opportunity and then ultimately what they went with over the long term wasn't as kind of promising. And it seems like they, it wasn't so much a missed opportunity perhaps with the search because as we kind of talked about it was a tease of things to perhaps come a bit of kind of playing around sort of seeing how things fit whereas with Voyager it was that you could have had this but no it's all gone and it's amazing that sometimes you know nearly 25 years later people are still like ah we really wish we could have maybe gone with that perhaps alternative history instead it's an interesting one with Year of Hell I don't have as big a problem with it as a lot of people do. Maybe again, because I sort of think it's kind of baked into the premise. They're fighting a time ship that can change history, that can rewrite things. We know in Star Trek you can rewrite history for good or ill. It's kind of obvious on some level that, that, do you know what I mean? Like the story has an escape route baked into it um, from this, uh, from this scenario. And to some extent, we know that that's what's going to happen with Star Trek. I mean, if you think of something like uh, the episode Deadlock in Voyager, once Harry Kim dies, we know that, you know, we're going to get, uh, maybe we don't know that we're going to get the other Harry Kim or how exactly it's going to kind of level out or, or how it's going to work. But, you know, you sort of know these things, the toys are going to get put back in the box um, to some extent. You, you know, it is going to sort of resolve itself. And I think... Maybe the thing with the search is, is really all you're given in the search is there's a, there's a locked door and something is behind that door. And you're given these two stories that appear to have not, well, almost nothing to do with each other because until you realize that the founders are, you know, the Odo's people are the founders of the Dominion, it does seem like these are, are to- sort of two unconnected plot strands. And then suddenly they come together. Maybe that, maybe there is a kind of, I suppose you can see why they thought it was a clever idea. It's, it is a clever trick, but at the same time, it's a trick that just maybe slightly annoys people. But I do wonder, you know, are these things slightly subjective? Are they based on, you know, what are your kind of genuine expectations going into it? I mean, it's interesting to know what are the debates that are going on in the writer's room about these kind of issues, about these kind of... Because often it's sort of about the stakes and about the kind of consequences, isn't it? And often there is that sort of back and forth between the writers wanting to do one thing and the producers and, you know, the kind of Rick Bermans of of the world uh, sort of coming back and saying, yeah, you can't do that. No, sorry, you know, you can't go that far. You're, you, you know, you have to kind of rein it in a little bit. Um, and interestingly... Of course, you, you know, talking about the search, I mean, the search has this kind of uh, sort of bait and switch ending, this this ending where it turns out none of it was real. Ira Stephen Bear famously wanted to end the entire series of DS9 in that way because um, he talks about the idea, he pitched to Rick Berman this idea that the very end of DS9 would be that we basically discover that, you know, as we've seen in uh, Far Beyond the Stars and in Shadows and Symbols, this idea that maybe... Ben Sisko and, and the story of DS9 is the fantasy of Benny Russell, that basically that would be the ending, the ending of the series would be, uh, you know, a reality, our reality in which Benny Russell exists and he's just been dreaming up. Um, he, he said he wanted to have him wandering around the, the sound, you know, the, the stages at Paramount basically as if they were, they'd made a TV show out of his, out of his stories or something. Uh, and Berman was just like, yeah, no, you're not doing that. <laughs> Partly because he said, you know, where does that leave? Quite apart from, yeah, okay, maybe DS9 is your weird 
passion projects uh, that you've been working on and we're kind of not paying much attention but where does that leave the rest of Star Trek you know are you kind of throwing the original series and Next Gen and Voyager and everything under the bus at the same time um, but I think it's interesting that Ira Stephen Bear obviously was quite keen on this idea and it is an idea that comes up in you know, with TV shows, I mean, most famously St. Elsewhere ended with this revelation that the entire series seemed to have taken place within the mind of an autistic child. Uh, it's this sort of idea that maybe it comes down to sort of how do you end your show? There seems to be this temptation for a lot of writers to kind of say, uh, it almost feels a bit sort of petulant, this kind of like, well, I'm done with it. So, you know, sod it. None of that ever happened. Or or to kind of recognise, you know, I'm the writer. I created this. This was a fiction. This was a fake. This was not a real thing. Somehow to, to want to smash through that kind of illusion, to kind of break that fourth wall in some way and sort of do something quite subversive. So you get all these shows with finales that really annoy people, whether it's Lost or The Sopranos, where they cut in the middle of a scene or, you know, as I say, it's an elsewhere where they basically said, yeah, none of that ever really happened. Um, it's interesting the way that writers seem to want to do that as a kind of, maybe it's a sort of power move on one level. Uh, it's a sort of gesture at their, their creative power. But it is, you know, very often one that really divides audiences and that kind of alienates a lot of the audience. You think of how many series finales are popular with people as well. It seems you, the discussion, people will talk about things like all good things, perfect finale. And then, but it seems to be more, you know, here we are years later, people are still talking about the lost finale, oral history of how lost ended, for example, you know, and you often see sometimes like an ending can be so bad that people will chase well let's well if we got a second go with it you know dare we even say something like nemesis if nemesis had the perfect ending would there have been the urge to make a star trek picard would patrick stewart have ultimately had done it would brent spiner be kind of you know brought back into to the fold it's hard to kind of say sometimes whereas sometimes with it an ending like deep space nine the ending that we got it's a really nice kind of bookend. Yeah, it leaves us on a sort of question. Will Cisco return today, tomorrow, and years from now? Who knows? But it's one of those ones you kind of get the impression with something like that, where it's it's got a nice, solid ending, whereas something like Endgame from Voyager, another one of these futures where we see an entire sort of timeline play out in front of us, and people are like, I didn't want to see that. I want to see these people in this kind of present day. And then people are talking about, right, relaunch novels, desperate to see the Voyager crew find out what they've been up to post this kind of show. Whereas you don't seem to get the urge, perhaps, from people to go, I want to see what's happened at Deep Space Nine in Lower Decks. I want them to visit those places. They always seem to kind of gravitate towards things that left them slightly frustrated. Or I I don't think it's because people aren't interested in Deep Space Nine. I think it's become the most popular show. But there's something probably about people where they want that second go around to know that everything was actually okay all in the end with the, the Voyager crew or something maybe interesting happened with them out with that finale. Well, DS9... um their finale was very different insofar as the Voyager finale felt very rushed at the end, I think. Uh, you, you know, once they got back to the Alpha Quadrant, we didn't see anything. The Deep Space Nine finale, they actually sort of ended the story with quite a chunk of time to go. Do you know what I mean? They kind of allowed themselves the opportunity to have that sort of extra period of wrapping things up, tying up the loose ends, sort of doing the proper goodbyes. Do you know what I mean? Like, sort of doing that. I mean, and I think that's something 
Uh, Babylon 5 used to do that quite a lot as well. I mean, if you think of the sort of five-act structure of a typical TV episode of that era, they would often actually wrap up the plot in the fourth act. And of course, they, they effectively ended up doing this for different reasons with the whole series, kind of basically wrapping up the plot after the fourth season and then having a whole extra season. That's sort of another whole other problem. But But that was a show where they would quite often wrap up the sort of dramatic plot and then give themselves a bit of time to decompress, a bit of time to sort of reflect um, in the final section. And I think the DS9 finale worked very well in that way because they allowed time after the kind of winning the war, the big sort of political stuff to deal with the sort of personal stuff and the personal stories as well. Endgame, it sort of felt like uh, they were doing plot, plot, plot right up to the wire and then suddenly, bam, it's over. So we didn't get any of that kind of decompressing we didn't get any of that sort of sense of you know where do these people go from here i mean next gen in some ways people always say all good things is the sort of perfect finale in a way it is because it wraps everything up but at the same time when it ends they're actually in the same place that they started the episode if you know what i mean they're just going off to the next adventure um that is almost an episode which on one level, sort of didn't happen. Do you know what I mean? It is almost kind of a dream, isn't it? I mean, Picard remembers it. Uh, it's not even entirely clear. You know, did any of these things happen? Was it just a kind of fantasy that Q sort of put in his head? Same with Tapestry again as well, you know, you could say. But I think it works because it's very upfront about what's... It may not be upfront about sort of existentially exactly what's going on, but it's very upfront about what's happening it's it's never kind of trying to trick the viewer it's never trying to sort of pull the wool over the viewer's eyes um it's sort of upfront about that in the same way as the inner light uh you know we have those scenes back on the bridge kind of reminders that this is happening sort of inside Picard's head we're not kind of they're not trying to trick us or not trying to sort of um confuse us about what's real and what isn't that's kind of set up quite straightforwardly and even far beyond the stars actually you know, it has that very short section at the beginning, which sort of just gets out of the way uh, the reality, the sort of, you know, in quotes, reality. Okay, Cisco's acting weird. He's in the infirmary being treated uh, by Bashir and so on. And people are worried about him. They get that out of the way in like the first five minutes and they never come back to it until the very end of the episode. And then the whole, you know, middle chunk of the episode takes place within the the dream or the fantasy or whatever you want to call it. Um, but they don't, they don't go for that kind of, again, there's an ambiguity. There's a sort of ambiguity. What does this vision mean? Who is sending it? Because I've always assumed the prophets are meant to be sending it, but I've heard some people say they think it was the par sending it. You know, what exactly is the function of it? There's this kind of lingering question at the end, this sort of existential question. How, you know, how do we ever know that we're the real version and not the, the fantasy? Um, which I was interested when I was looking into this kind of trope, uh, apparently comes from the third century Chinese philosopher Zhuangzi, who told a story about dreaming that he was a butterfly and then woke to wonder if it was possible that actually he was a butterfly who was dreaming of being a human being. So this sort of idea of, you know, who's the dreamer? Who's the dream? Uh, Alice in Wonderland, again, there's a section where Alice is told that maybe she's the dream of one of the Wonderland characters that she's being dreamed. So there are these kind of ambiguities there, but they're, at least the episode is very clear sort of within the the reality of Deep Space Nine as a story. Uh, there's a kind of frame that makes sense within that story. And I think maybe that's, maybe it is partly about sort of when does the switch take place? 
you know, often there is a dreamlike element to it. Something like Inquisition, it takes place in the middle of the night. So it's literally like a dream for Bashir. He goes to sleep and then experiences all this stuff, okay, on a holodeck, but it might as well be in his head in a dream in a way. Um, some of these episodes, it's, it's, there's a moment that you can kind of pinpoint when you go back. As I say, with the search, it happens between the two episodes, which is almost, that in itself almost feels a little bit like a cheat because it's like, that's time that, again, sort of thinking about this contract, we sort of accept that, obviously we know that there's there must be time that happens between episodes that we see, but you kind of don't expect them to use that against you in a way, to use the fact that, yes, there's one week and then there's the next week. And do you know what I mean? It feels sort of dishonest somehow. Whereas at least if it happens at a moment in the episode, you can kind of go back and say, ah, oh, yeah, okay, that was the point where something shifted. That was the point where something changed. And you can sort of pinpoint it. I think there can also be some times where even if you're very much aware, something like Future Imperfect, I think you get, the imp- I personally get the impression quite quickly, well, this is completely out of the ordinary, just in terms of how everyone's behaving. But it's visually interesting to watch. There's Worf in a different position. There's a Ferengi, different uniforms. There's a lot of kind of stimulation as a fan where ultimately Star Trek, and in particular something like Next Generation, very episodic TV, everything is always in kind of the right place, nice even keel TV lighting. So things like Future Imperfect, Yesterday's Enterprise, which is obviously a different approach, they always stand out for being slightly different, for playing with the bridge, playing with the uniforms, playing with expectations. And then you maybe get something like Enterprise's Vanishing Point, for example, where you watch it and it's like all this scenario takes place within Hoshi's head while she's in sort of an ion-infused transporter for eight seconds. And it's a really bad sort of twist, but it's also not a very interesting kind of bottle episode where it's like there's Hoshi sort of having some interactions and there's Hoshi in the gym there's Hoshi doing Morse code there's nothing there that sort of stimulates you sort of beyond sort of the you know it's a potential dream there's something a bit weird going on here it it just doesn't kind of grip you the way some of the other scenarios do where even though you know the this the twist is going to come it's going to be pulled out from underneath you you still go away going oh i really like that idea that com badge and you can sometimes see in the cosplay what people pick as their favorite episodes it's sometimes those episodes whether it's far beyond the stars your future and perfect all good things for a variety of different reasons i think ultimately sometimes it comes down to it got to kind of break free and play with elements in a way that they couldn't normally do so it lets them push things one way or another. Now, that's true even in the search, I suppose, in that it lets them push things in terms of the, the politics and all this sort of thing. But I think you're right. And and maybe the problem with Vanishing Point is, yeah, it doesn't really push anything. And therefore, the episode feels, you know, A, it's kind of pointless because it never happened. But it's kind of dramatically pointless as well because... And they sort of try to make it be about something at the very end by saying, oh, Hoshi stepped onto the transporter at the end, which I have to say, I mean, I've seen that episode a few times and it barely registers for me. It's like, it doesn't feel like a moment in the story at all. It's not uh, telling you Picard have to, have... to shut up, is it? Exactly. No, exactly. And you have to have Archer say, basically saying that was the point of this story. Do you know what I mean? There was, there was some kind of character development. There was some kind of point here. Something happened. Uh, that that's the only level on which anything happened is how she had a kind of momentary dream where she was a bit less scared of the transport than she was before. I suppose you could say the stakes are sort of monumentally low somehow um, compared to some of these other stories. And it's not, it's not a trick. It's not a test. There aren't, you know, nothing really hinges on her uh, snapping out of it. And again, it's one of these ones. I do wonder whether this is part of what 
makes them work or not. She doesn't realise, you know, just as in the search, they don't realise. So you don't get that satisfying moment of kind of, aha, you know, you you made this mistake. You've got something wrong here. Uh, you know, I've seen through your kind of your trick or whatever, uh, like you get with, you know, Bashir or Data in these, in these other episodes. Um, I think that kind of works against it in, in quite a, a bad way. It's interesting, though. I mean, some of these ones where there's a kind of nightmarish element to it, it can be quite effective. The switch between, you know, you're talking about pushing things to an extreme or pushing things beyond the, the kind of normal. Um, when I think it can work quite well is when you start quite mundane, you start quite realistic, and then it sort of gradually ramps up. And in some ways, it's a little bit like there's that kind of trope in horror films, isn't there, where you have you know, is it over? Is it not? Is it a nightmare? Uh, and you get that in first contact with Picard with, we think he's woken from the nightmare and then he has the Borg thing erupting from his face. And then that's, that's the second nightmare. So it's kind of, you know, he gets that sort of moment of, of waking up, but it's just a short moment. It's like, you know, in aliens, there's that moment where, uh, Ripley, uh, there's a kind of chestburster, uh, crisis, but it turns out to be a dream, right? At the beginning of the, of the film. You, you know, so you get these kind of, they're little teases and they're quite quick and they're out of the way quite quickly. And it's just like a sort of horrific moment. It can work quite well. I mean, I would say in Voyager, both Coda and Barge of the Dead work quite well insofar as they start off seeming to exist in reality and then they get increasingly weird and freaky and you sort of start to think, okay, this, this can't be right. In Coda, I think the way it works partly, and I know a lot of people don't like that episode for various reasons. I sort of don't mind it. I think it, it works better than it might do in some ways um, because you've got partly because it sort of plays on the cause and effect riff. So you think there's a, a sort of Star trek explanation for what's going on. That's very different from what turns out to be the real one. Uh, so it sets itself up as a different kind of episode. Then you've got Janeway coming back to the ship. Then she's got the phage. You're thinking, wow, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to have to cure her. And it's when suddenly the doctor starts trying to kill her. It's like suddenly the episode has flipped and you're like, okay, this can't, do you know what I mean? You have that moment where you think, okay, this can't be real anymore. It's, it's pushed it too far, but it's slightly crept up on you. And again, with Barge of the Dead, there's this kind of sense. Uh, it feels quite realistic, apart from, you know, that thing is bleeding on Balana's coffee table. But then you sort of, you're thinking, is there some weird mystical Klingon thing going on? You know, is there another explanation for this? Um, what's going on? But there, there are these kind of clues, you know, like Janeway calling Alana instead of Balana. And so the kind of little clues along the way, but it's not totally clear that reality is not what it seems to be. It just, it gets increasingly strange until you get that point where Tuvok starts acting really weird and, and sort of uh, being quite aggressive and so on. You think, okay, there's, there's definitely something up here. And I suppose maybe that captures that experience of being in a dream where you realise that you're in a dream, uh, you know, that kind of where you start trying to pinch yourself, trying to wake yourself up from the dream, that kind of sense of, hang on, this doesn't quite add up. It, se- it seemed like it all added up and now it's not quite adding up. And I think that kind of realisation can be very effective it can be quite sort of potent dramatically um and i quite like those episodes where it sort of slowly teases you to that place in a way and then you you know sometimes you're slightly ahead of the character sometimes you're slightly behind the character but you kind of get that that realization a revelation and then where do you go from there 
almost gives them sort of that permission to to really push out because they can almost hide behind. Well, it is a dream. You know, I think something like, you know, you, you'd written an article about Jatrell. It was an episode I watched this week for the first time in quite a while. And there's that image of something like Kess with like her skin burning off and sort of like um, this sort of hallucination style dream that Neelix has. And, and like, I'm the, I'm the same. Coda is an episode I have mixed feelings on. But the imagery of like Captain Janeway being sort of gassed to death and then choked, they're quite dark images, you know, not just in Voyager, but in Star Trek all to kind of gather. But it, almost that, that dream that they can sort of go, you can imagine the writers sometimes, less so Deep Space Nine, but Voyager where it's like, their hands are tied behind their back, what they can do with this crew and sort of how they can push things in episodic ways. So you think of something like Coda there, let's kill the captain. How would it feel if they turned on her and she's dead and they're off to the, she's off to the afterlife. What would a Voyager crew look like without her? Then you have something like barge of the dead sort of, Torres getting real in touch with her Klingon side. You know, it's no surprise that that was sort of Ronald D. Ronald Deemer's like final involvement with the, the Trek franchise out of going on to do the odd audio commentary. So they kind of get this wish fulfillment. And then there's other little episodes like Latent Image. You know, what happens if the crew took that wrong turn and were actually quite dastardly? And Course Oblivion is one that just drives me absolutely nuts because it's one of those ones that you have this relationship builds with Balan and Tom. You know, one of the kind of very few to sort of be quite successful in terms of Voyager, you know, to an extent, of course. But you get to see them kind of get married and then sort of face disaster and it's really heartbreaking. But then you almost have to wait another three years to see them get properly married in sort of season seven in sort of an off-screen kind of moment. It's frustrating what you see sometimes the imagery, the ideas they do in these dreams, sort of parallel ideas with Voyager. You think there's something there where the writers are just wanting to break free. And I, I get the impression that comes probably strongly from sort of Brandon Braga. You, you interviewed him recently on this show. And I, I love the idea of like, he, this is a guy that has such a horror background. And he's infused that into quite a lot of his Star Trek work, in particular Voyager and Elements. And you can almost see his sort of fingerprints on it of like, let's push the boy out because we can get away with it if it's a dream. I, I don't think the big wigs at Paris Paramount or Star Trek are going to allow it if it's something kind of a bit more day-to-day in in the episodic episodes. It's true. And you can do these kind of horrific deaths. You can do these sort of, you know, if you're going to kill a character off in Star Trek, okay, you know, it is possible to kill characters from the show, but you're not going to kill them in these really gruesome, really awful, really kind of painful ways. You know, if you, if you, if you want the thrill of, of strangling Janeway repeatedly in an episode, you know, uh, that's something that's available to you. I mean, interestingly, Coda, of course, is a Jerry Taylor episode. Um, you're right. We do tend to think of Braga as, as the kind of horror guy. And I did talk to him a lot about that, but he mentioned, you know, Jerry Taylor wrote Night Terrors. That's a pretty terrifying mm-hmm. episode. Uh, and I think some of the stuff she writes into, Coda is pretty horrific as well. You know, she obviously had a, I don't think we, th- we think of her as this quite sort of idealistic sort of, um, sort of old school bit of the kind of maybe the Michael Pillar school of Star Trek somehow. But actually she obviously has a bit of, uh, grit <laughs> and a bit of kind of, you know, this, this darker side as well. Um, I suppose one of the themes in a lot of these stories, because they are about sort of fantasy and reality as I've said, is they do often have this moment of realisation and this moment of kind of challenge where someone not only realises that they're being tricked, but sort of uh, fights back verbally in a sense. You know, so you've got Janeway and Coda, actually, the point where she 
uh, it's when she starts arguing back against that whatever it is creature that's pretending to be her father and she pushes him quite hard uh arguing with him suddenly she gets a glimpse of reality and sees that she's actually you know lying on the ground and uh her friends are kind of operating on her or whatever um so it's interesting the fact that there's that moment of almost asserting your own grip on reality it, it, it's almost that you could say you know it's almost like kind of gaslighting or something these stories aren't they someone else is sort of imposing their version of reality on you and the person has that moment of standing up and kind of saying no i don't accept this I, you know, I, I believe that reality is not as it's being presented to me. And that goes all the way back to Alice in Wonderland as well. I mean, in Alice in Wonderland, it's the point where, uh, she says the line, you're nothing but a pack of cards, which I suppose on one level is a sort of assertion of a sort of assertion of reality in a sense. It's, you know, like, I mean, it, it's weird and complicated, but it, you, you know, say, saying you're not, you're not what you're, acting as you're you know you're not really monarchs and kind of powerful people and so you're just a, a pack of cards which is on one level sort of what they are is when reality sort of starts to seep in and the dream world starts to sort of give way i mean interestingly when you get to episodes like barge of the dead and far beyond the stars though you get this sort of fundamental ambiguity where there is a big question mark with something like barge of the dead it never quite answers the question of whether it was real or it wasn't. Was it a dream? Was it a kind of access to the afterlife? You, you know, they're sort of playing this kind of ambiguous game. And, and by the end, there's almost a sort of slightly jokey element where it's been taking itself quite seriously. And, and we've been sort of accepting Bolanas on this spiritual quest. Somehow for the story to work, we have to buy into the idea that it's real. And then her mother says, you, you know, I'll, I'll see you again or something. She says in Stovacore and she says, yes, or, you know, maybe when you get home. <laughs> in other words, basically slightly kind of pulling the rug out from under it and saying, you know, just to remind you, this whole thing may be a load of bunkum, basically. Um, but I think it works quite well in that episode. I think it sort of plays the ambiguity uh, in a way that in itself is quite satisfying because I suppose the problem is Voyager can't come out and say there is a Klingon afterlife. Balana magically was transported there by, you know, being unconscious uh, and, and was able to do these things in this kind of spiritual realm. But at the same time, if they totally discount it, then the episode is meaningless. It's basically just Bellana goes off on a sort of mad, uh, you sort of silly, meaningless quest. So I suppose they managed to find a way of doing it where they sort of keep those stakes intact just by being sort of skirting that line somehow, sort of refusing to come down one side or the other on, on what's real and what isn't. And maybe, I don't think that's exactly what's going on in Far Beyond the Stars, but it's interesting that Far Beyond the Stars also sort of tries to play this game of having Cisco make that speech at the end, which I have to say never quite works for me, you know, maybe for the same reason that um, the ending that uh, Iris Stephen Bear wanted for the series certainly wouldn't have worked for me. Um, because I just don't think, you know, Maybe this is me being a bit literal minded about it, but I've had many dreams that felt real while I was dreaming them and I've woken up and felt sort of, oh God, you, you know, found it hard to shake the dream, but they have never actually caused me to question my own reality. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I think maybe that is a little bit of a stretch and a little bit of a kind of, that's, that's quite a big suspension of disbelief somehow to buy into but but whether you kind of buy it psychologically or not i suppose on a narrative level it's sort of interesting and it it's interesting that the shows both those shows sort of want to walk that line and not 100 percent come down one way or the other 
I think it's one of those ones that I think almost becomes the discourse around something like that, where, you know, we were talking the other day, sort of, as we were sort of began the homework, where we both kind of got to the end of Vanishing Point and went, God, that really was a sort of terrible kind of twist and reveal, because the whole episode hinges on how do they get Hoshi back? You know, what's going on here? And the ultimate mystery completely falls apart. I always find it quite interesting when, you know, far beyond the stars in terms of in the What We Left Behind documentary, fandom discussion as far back as I can kind of remember from when the episode aired all the way through to now, no one ever sort of goes, oh, you know, there's the debate about how they got into that situation where we see this kind of universe kind of take out. The discussion almost seems to be about isn't this powerful what they have to say about race and that this is classic Star Trek that shines a light on race issues, you know, what performance by Avery Brooks, you know, whether, you know, obviously there's some people that do disagree, but there's no one almost goes, oh yeah. And like, you know, there's never anyone going talking about, oh, and then it's sort of the profits or the power rate. There's that tiny discourse elsewhere, whereas the success of the episode, people are will, almost feel like they it really doesn't matter how they got there. It could have been some sort of holodeck adventure or something like that. That, you know, something like Vanishing Point just ultimately it hinges on one thing, whereas the main sort of what holds it all together with something like um, Far Beyond the Stars, it ultimately didn't matter to a lot of viewers, it feels like. Well, it's about something really important. I suppose that's part of it. And it feels very real. And one of the things that always impresses me about that episode is that all those characters, you, you know, the entire cast get to play new characters and all those characters really come to life, you know, and they don't have much screen time, each of them to do that. Obviously, you get, you, you know, I suppose uh, Armin Shimmerman and Rene Auberginois get these kind of quite meaty uh, sort of stuff to chew on. But, you know, even, you know, Michael Dorn's baseball player and then the Jake character as well. You know, they managed to kind of imbue quite a lot of reality somehow into these totally other people that we're only, you know, spending a matter of minutes with each in a sense. Um, and to kind of make that feel quite real. I suppose that's part of it is even though that weirdly kind of counterintuitively, even though we know from the very beginning that on some level it's not real, it feels very real and it's played very real and yeah, possibly Avery Brooks's performance. Some people feel it goes a little bit too histrionic or whatever. But I think certainly as a director, he absolutely grounds that story in reality. And that's why it's so heartbreaking. And we feel for Benny Russell, you know, we feel like Benny Russell is a real person. He's not just a kind of, he's not Dixon Hill. Do you know what I mean? He's not just a kind of alter ego of Ben Sisko. He feels like a real person and he feels like someone who is, you know, suffering real, uh, you know, misery, if you know what I mean. And so there's this weird sense of one of Star Trek's least real stories is somehow one of its most real stories because it's it's not an allegory. It's not set in the future. It's kind of, you know, this is our own, I mean, it's our own history, but it's also, as you know, we've been seeing in the past few months, it's also, frankly, our own present. You, you know, a lot of these issues are not ones that have gone away. They're They're kind of very pervasive. And I think the episode manages to play it very straight in a weird way as a sort of 1950s uh drama and that's where kind of a lot of the the strength of it comes from and i do think that's part of that is that it gets a lot of the paraphernalia out of the way quite quickly you know it gets us into that reality and it sort of keeps us there other than these occasional glimpses where you know benny is seeing you know he sees cisco's reflection and he sees um 
uh, Kira instead of the character that an our visitor is playing so these kind of moments and i suppose it it also plays on this sense that you know is he losing his mind what's going on for him it's, it feels like he's sort of having a kind of breakdown uh but frankly who could blame him given everything that he's being put through and the the terrible experiences that he's having um so again even on that level it sort of feels like there's a kind of realism to it because you know how can you expect someone to go through all of that and it not be destroying their mental health basically so I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's an episode that never fails to, uh, really pack a kind of emotional punch. I mean, it's a very powerful episode, uh, compared to probably any of these other ones that we've talked about. Weirdly, it, the fact that it's a fantasy doesn't stop it from feeling intensely real. I think it works quite well as well when you think of it. Say, like, it's sort of Avery Brooks's Cisco quote unquote looking at sort of racism in sort of the, you know, that era, era of kind of uh, America with, with a focus on that. But then they almost kind of go back to something slightly similar in sort of season seven when they do it as a, like, take me out to the hollow suite where Cisco sort of looks at the racism in America again, sort of in the, that mid kind of 1900s, 1960s kind of era um, in sort of Las Vegas. And, you know, it's an enjoyable romp of an, an episode, but sort of the frame device of sort of the whole, the holodeck doesn't make it sort of as an engaging kind of debate and discussion and doesn't allow it to get as deep because ultimately we're just seeing our characters play it out, sort of a, a bit of fantasy kind of role play where sort of the device that they use when something like far beyond the stars immediately kind of grips you and we're just seeing these characters and actors that you know star trek fans don't just kind of adore these characters they adore the actors as well we get to got to see them portray these kind of characters and it didn't really matter that they were not playing cisco or quark or odo but we were quite happy to see these character act character actors play in a, a fascinating role in a way that i think works a hell of a lot better than team out to the hollow suite which is still a, an enjoyable episode yeah, and I think it's interesting. I was reading again in the companion, there was a, an interview with Jeffrey Combs and he was sort of saying to begin with, he was thinking, how does this, does this character have to have facets of Wayun? You know, am I playing a version of Wayun? And in the end, he decided to actually throw that out the window. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just that Cisco has kind of latched onto this sort of, he's just sort of taken the, the model of Wayun and obviously he's a, you know, sort of antagonist. So he's put him in an antagonistic role. Uh, but. I, you know, he was saying he sort of felt free to create a new character for those scenes. And I think that's part of the strength of it. You know, Rene Aubergenois doesn't play that character of the editor as Odo in any way. Uh, although obviously you can see there are parallels between him and Odo's, Odo's sort of, you know, being stuck between, you know, if you think of Odo working for the Cardassians or something like that, Odo as being a sort of stickler, uh, for the rules and so on. And there's a kind of sense that that editor character is, you know, frustratingly sort of inflexible and, you know, going along with, with, with the hierarchy and with the rules and all these sorts of things. I suppose there, there are kind of elements of parallelism between the, the kind of, you know, the real in inverted commas DS9 characters and the sort of far beyond the stars characters. And then there are these kind of inversions. So you have the Quark character who suddenly becomes the sort of, um, mouthpiece of, kind of liberal values in a sense. And also, I suppose, ironically, you know, maybe a communist where, you know, Quark is the sort of ultra capitalist. But I think it's interesting that the episode plays with this idea of kind of doubling, which you do see in a lot of these similar stories, uh, these kind of, it was only a dream stories. I mean, you think of the Wizard of Oz, you've got that scene at the end of the Wizard of Oz and you were there and you were there and you were there. You know, everyone 
in the real world exists in the fantasy and vice versa. There's, there's these kind of counterparts. Even in Peter Pan, you get the same thing. You know, the dad in Peter Pan is always Captain Hook and, you know, the, the real world characters have to kind of represent the dream characters. I suppose this idea that, you know, when we dream, we take elements from our real lives and from the everyday and kind of, and sometimes we do recast people in our dreams. We do sort of put them in different roles. Uh, you, you know, it's, it doesn't, everyone isn't necessarily playing the same part. Uh, it reminds me actually of, you know, there's that discussion in one of the Mirror Universe episodes, isn't there? The, the what do they say? The players are all the same, but they're all playing different parts or something. I mean, it is obviously something that Star Trek likes to do, but I think that kind of doubling works particularly uh, effectively here. And it, I don't think the episode would be as successful if you, you, you know, obviously he could have had a fantasy and uh, they could have cast a whole load of guest actors to populate the story. And on one level, maybe that would have been more, you know, in a sense, it would have been more realistic. But at the same time, the fact that it's the regular cast, again, it's sort of, it reinforces all the way through. This is something that's sort of real, but not real. It's sort of, you know, it is kind of a dream that he's having. And yet it's a dream where the stakes seem to be very high. Uh, and obviously there is, you know, a level of reality to it. And also on this kind of meta level, it's, you know, we know Star Trek was conceived of as a way to tell real world stories in a science fiction setting, in a, you know, dream in inverted commas setting. Um, so it's an episode, it's sort of operating on so many different levels simultaneously, different levels of reality, different levels of fantasy, different levels of, you know, dream reality. Um, and it's sort of toying with that all the way and even acknowledging it within the story insofar as they have this discussion, well, what if he makes his story a dream? And you have Armin Shimmerman's character coming in saying that guts the story, it ruins it, you know, a bit like we're saying with The Search. Okay, The Search was a good, great bit of political drama revealing that it was all a dream guts the story. Uh, that's sort of the debate that they're having. Does it ruin the story? Does it make it more poignant? You know, what 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 are the kind of balancing acts? Because it's a high stakes game in a way telling these sort of stories that aren't really real. Um, and if you screw it up, you have an audience who are really unhappy with you, you know, but if you can make it work, then as we've seen, some of these episodes are absolute classics. Yeah, I think so as well. And I think like one of the episodes you, you touched on earlier, Inquisition, I think that's a very underrated episode as well. You know, it's it's one of these ones, it's almost a classic kind of spy thriller where we're so used to kind of spies being kind of about deception and sort of uh, subterfuge. And I think we got to see that sort of how they use sort of the holodeck with kind of um, Bashir and so on. And it's that element, again, it works on kind of multiple levels. It goes from one level to another. You know, he's stranded on the he's nine minutes within the Dominion then it's all kind of revealed sort of slow and then he's dropped back in I think it's a, a very underrated episode and one probably one of the most kind of consequential episodes of sort of you know this dream scenario actually reveals something that now has carried on into you know you think of something like Future Imperfect yeah we got to see some of those combadges again in future episodes with that episode we got to see the birth of Section 31 which would appear in a few more episodes then in the prequel series Enterprise then in some movies now in the new Star Trek Discovery series and now it looks like it's going to get its own spin-off show who would have thought you know Dream Within a Dream well Dream episodes often don't have further kind of consequences this one has is all built around this reveal that's had huge impact on sort of star trek and had um, huge discussions since yeah i think that's an interesting point that although whatever 90 percent of inquisition didn't happen 
I suppose it did happen for Bashir. It did, you know, on one level, it did happen. It wasn't literally a dream, even though, as I say, it happened in the middle of the night. So it kind of feels a bit like a dream, probably from his point of view. But the the real world consequences are quite significant and far reaching. And he, through the course of that experience, has discovered something uh, quite sort of significant and meaningful and, and real. I mean, weirdly, I suppose this sense that, you know, this was a section 31 was this kind of secret. It was almost like this dream and I suppose the more they go in Section 31 now, and it seems like in Discovery's era, it was out in the open. And, and then it's it's kind of become this sort of unconscious thing that no one is quite aware of somehow. Uh, and they're sort of becoming murkily aware of it and sort of trying to find out more about it. I think it's an interesting one. Yeah, I think it doesn't... It, it's an interesting question why it doesn't bother anyone to the same extent that so much of that episode is a fake out. Um Whereas, say, Vanishing Point, it does. But I think you're right. You know, maybe ultimately the episode does lead to something and it kind of sets up, you know, they kind of, it almost ends on a sort of dot, 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 you, you know, uh, to be continued kind of thing. Because they're basically saying, oh, when Section 31 come back, you know, this is what we're going to do. So they're sort of promising this This story's not over yet. This is not the end of it. Um, so as much as it was unreal, it's going to, they've uncovered something real and it's kind of going to go forward. Um Maybe that's part of it. Whereas some of these ones, something like Vanishing Point, you know, ultimately nothing happened. Even in Eye of the Beholder, I think that's quite an interesting one because that's a very strange episode where a large portion of that episode just takes place in Troy's head. And you don't really realise that until right at the end. And I always find it really confusing. Whenever I watch it, um, which I have to say I don't watch it particularly frequently, but I'm usually sort of vaguely aware that that's the case but I can't necessarily see it. Do you know what I mean? You don't necessarily see it coming and then you watch it through and you think, okay, hang on. So what was the last, what was the last thing in that episode that actually did happen? Um, and I think that slightly hurts the episode, I guess, at least with the, with the DS9 one. And I have a feeling with Inquisition, it again, and maybe this goes slightly against what I was saying earlier about them cheating by doing it in the break between episodes. I think it happens between the teaser and the episode itself, possibly. Um, you know, when, when is the switch? If you know what I mean, if you're thinking of it like a magic trick, like Iris Stephen Bear was saying, he thought they were performing this clever magic trick with the search. You know, it's always about misdirection, isn't it? It's always about you think one thing's happening and that's the point where the, you know, the, the real body is swapped for the dummy or whatever it is. Um, and the kind of, that's how the trick takes place. You're, you're supposed to be misdirected at the point when it's happening. Um, but I don't know. I think, I think it's interesting. You're, you're right. That's one that, I don't think it does suffer from this, this kind of issue. And, and maybe it is about the kind of real world consequences. And the reason people don't like reset button episodes is because of the lack of consequences, isn't it? And I mean, at the most extreme level, you think of something like, um, Dallas, for example, they famously did a kind of reset button on an entire season of continuity and just, uh, unwrote it and basically said that whole, you know, everything that happened going back, you know, going way, way back, uh, was all a dream inside someone's head as a way of sort of getting themselves out of a, a you know, a kind of continuity snag or whatever and, and freeing themselves up to bring a character back and do all these sorts of things. And that I think is very problematic because that is very much breaking that kind of contract with the audience that, you know, you're investing in something and that it's meaningful somehow. And that's why I think if Ira Bear had had his way and revealed that the whole of DS9 was a fantasy and none of it ever happened, people would have been really 
annoyed because, you know, we spent seven years watching these people and caring about them and getting involved in their stories. And maybe for the writers, they're all just characters because they spend their working life playing with them and, you know, moving them around and deciding who lives and dies and what happens to them. But for the audience, on some level, they're more real than they are for the writers. Yeah, I think so as well. I think it would, it'd be interesting, sort of, I remember it's, I remember when it was sort of discussed this twist ending or what it could have been. It's one of those ones I've never thought, oh, I would love to see that. You know, there's so many alternate history kind of Star Trek, whether it's movies or TV shows or ideas that I would love to have seen played out. But that's one that's never stuck in my head that going, I would love to have seen them end Deep Space Nine that way. I, I, I think, you know, Rick Berman has you know, been pulled up for, you know, putting the guardrails on some promising ideas in the past. I think this one, he probably had his, his finger on the pulse here. I think that would have been, a, I think it would have tainted the, the show perhaps. And I think we'd have discussed it in a very different way. And it'd be interesting to see how its legacy would have kind of stood up had they gone down that route. It's it's an interesting one to, to imagine. I, I just, I couldn't imagine it myself. And that's kind of exciting and nervous at the same time. Well, interestingly, when you look at Far Beyond the Stars and the kind of history behind that original episode, ironically, especially given that there's this discussion in the episode about whether something will gut the story, what the stakes are, you, you know, whether making it a dream kind of ruins it. Um, the history of that episode was that they originally had a pitch from the guy who ended up writing the story uh, that was slightly different. Um, and what Iris Stephen Bear thought about that was that it was it was basically Cisco thinks he's going he's sort of sent back in time to the 1950s, but it all turns out to be a trick. It's you know some alien or whatever to uh, kind of get some information about him. But basically, future imperfect uh, Mark II almost. Um, and what Ira Bear said was, he said, it, it just felt like a trick. It felt like a gimmick. There was no bottom to the story. And so I said, no, I don't think so. And then they realised that they liked the idea of dealing with racism, dealing with that time period and the 1950s and science fiction writers. And so they, they had lunch with this, with the guy who pitched the story and said, you know, can we find a different way of doing it? And they found their way of, you know, sort of telling a lot of those elements of the story, but without it feeling like, I suppose without it feeling like you were supposed to buy into the idea of it as a time travel story and then realise that it was a fake, which is basically what happened with um, uh, Future Imperfect. So it's interesting that when they were doing that episode, Iris Stephen Bear saw it as a cop-out to kind of say that this was all a fake and that it, it, it didn't happen somehow. And they found a way of writing it a little bit more poetically, a little bit more ambiguously, a little bit more sort of meaningfully. And yet... When it came to ending the series, he was seriously thinking maybe, you know, maybe saying that it was all fake is, is going to be a, you know, a decent ending. And who knows? I mean, maybe it wasn't the most serious pitch. Maybe he was winding Rick Berman up. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, maybe he was exhausted after seven years of, of working on this thing and thinking, God, how the hell do we, you know, wrap all this up? Uh, we've written so much plot. How do we kind of tie things together and it did take them 10 episodes to you know tie it all together at the end in a sense uh, to have that kind of final stretch but it is a weird one it's definitely um you know i mean we talked on this show uh i've i've talked with various people about i i mean i think iris Stephen bear is one of the you know best storytellers star trek has ever had but that doesn't mean that every idea that comes out of his head is cast iron genius i mean uh, I did an episode with Tony about um, 
uh, Meridian and Brigadoon. Uh, and that was very much Ira Stephen Bear's idea. And he basically said, yeah, that was a terrible idea. You know, <laughs> I wanted to, I like this film. I wanted to do it on Star Trek. I sh- you know, I'm an idiot. I shouldn't have done that. So, you know, no one is perfect, I suppose. Um, and everyone is capable of having a bad idea. And, you know, the stakes are high. If you, if you have a bad idea for your finale, as arguably is what happened with Enterprise, that was a kind of clever idea that, uh, Braga and Berman came up with, you know, let's do an episode of Enterprise where it's all takes place within an episode of the next generation. It's, you know, it's quite a clever conceit, but it was a monumentally bad idea for a series finale. It makes you wonder if people would have gone, you know what, what we leave behind part one, that's where it ends, the Dominion War, <laughs> and they all <laughs> yeah. return to Deep Space Nine happily ever after. Yeah. There was no part two. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the kind of trip lives uh, version of that. I- exactly. Like people sort of, almost erasing that episode from history because it's so uh such a terrible ending and such a kind of unsatisfying way of doing it and it it is almost it's not quite an it was only a dream episode but it is it does sort of have that weird effect because although it's just one episode and all the enterprise stuff in it is just a hollow simulation the fact that they did it as the final episode it sort of feels like it's saying the entire series was a simulation now it's not saying that but at the same time I think it could very easily be misread as saying that. Um, and it's certainly, it's saying we're going to go out on a story that has no stakes whatsoever. And the only stakes in the episode are a sort of moral dilemma for Riker that we saw resolved, you know, whatever it is, like six or seven years ago now, uh, perfectly satisfactorily. So it's, it, it is again, it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it's presented as history. It's something that did happen, but it's also something that, on one level isn't happening while we're watching it. Do you know what I mean? It's not real. It's mm-hmm. not meaningful. Um, so as much as it annoys us that Trip gets killed off and, you know, the whole episode is kind of feels slightly insulting to anyone who's interested in enterprise. It's, it's the unreality of it is what, um, makes it feel so pointless and so worthless and kind of, you know, why couldn't they have shown us this stuff if they want to show us this sort of birth of the kind of, you know, what's going to become the Federation, Show us that story. Don't don't give us a fake version of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things I think that's it feels like that's kind of the thing is if you can make it meaningful, whether it's a dream in terms of being visually entertaining or engaging, the audience will kind of go with you this this whole way. But if you fail kind of to deliver on it and, you know, disappoint or frustrate the audience, then it seems to be some of these episodes that we're kind of highlighting, you know, the the end games, the finales, some of these alternative futures. It, it's just going to frustrate the audience and all in a way might frustrate the, the writers that they kind of had to kind of go with that route and not have a, you know, fail to live up to the idea that they maybe had. I suppose there's also a question. So there's a question about what are the writers, what what's what's their intent, you know, what's the purpose of the of the decision to do, to do one of these episodes. What's the kind of intention? What's the goal? What's the impact on the audience? The audience is being taken through it. Then there's sort of the question within the episode. What's the goal? You know, encoder that that alien is trying to feed on Janeway. It's trying to sort of make her give up uh, and, and go and die and go into its matrix. Um, in future imperfect, uh, uh, as I said, I sort of feel like when it seems like it's the Romulans trying to get tactical information out of Riker, that makes a lot of sense. That fits with what we've seen of the Romulans. You know, if you think of something like the mind's eye, uh, you know, these kind of shady complex tactics, it kind of makes perfect sense. They're sort of trying to trick him um, with something like um, Inquisition. They're 
it you know it is a test it's a kind of examination of um Bashir to sort of find out about him i mean with far beyond the stars i think it's sort of an interesting question you know what is the purpose of this vision assuming it's the prophets that have sent it is it supposed to give cisco a a sort of reason to keep fighting to go on it's a weird one isn't it because it pretty much destroys him in the character of benny russell um I've always found it a slightly weird one. I think it's an amazing episode. But once you start thinking about what what was this vision supposed to do? And it, it does almost fit with this theory. Oh, maybe it was the Parwraith sending it. Because, uh, you know, going through that experience, having a dream like that, having a kind of fantasy uh, experience like that, you'd think would only make you feel more depressed and more kind of hopeless and more, which is the situation he starts the episode in, you know, sort of feeling like the war is kind of hopeless and maybe it's time he gave up. Um, and I suppose the episode is all, you know, there's like the, the preacher character saying, write the words, you know, keep going, don't give up, do your bit and so on. But at the same time, he's being absolutely sort of brutalized really um, to the point where, you know, he has kind of completely lost it at the end and he's being kind of, taken away to some kind of institution as we, you know, as we see when we sort of pick up that story thread later on. So I don't know. I've always sort of wondered what is, is it a kind of test of character for Cisco? Is it a kind of lesson that he's supposed to be learning? Um, and in a way, I think it's good that the episode doesn't answer those questions because if they did, it might seem a bit pat. It might seem a little bit like Archer in Vanishing Point saying, well, you know, uh, yes, you might think this didn't happen, but at least we learned a valuable lesson about, you know, when push came to shove, you you were brave enough to try using a transporter. I don't know, but I think it's an interesting way. It, it leaves this kind of ambiguity. There's ambiguity around whether what's real and what isn't, but there's also this sort of ambiguity about why did this happen in the first place? I've often thought of it sometimes as I, I like that ambiguity that you can come at it. Like, it, you know, it almost doesn't even matter kind of why it's it's so such a gripping hour of tv but i've often wondered is that we sort of see cisco sort of he's got that simmering kind of anger and underneath him you think something like the the season six opener a time to stand where he's hears the bad news about the seventh fleet and he just cracks the glass table i've often wondered if he he needed that sort of good cry really you know as silly as that sounds just to be broken down to have that emotional release on that ground floor to just be overcome with emotion to then you know be able to kind of rise up again from it and to to go from that i i think it's probably one of these things that will date the podcast obviously we're in lockdown just now you know you hear about people that are just have that moment where they just emotionally break down have that good cry you know let their emotions over come out of them so that they can get back up the next day and go right i've got a bit more energy i've cast that off here we go again so there's something almost cathartic about it which does make sense in a way because that is i think what people believe dreams are sort of for on one level isn't it that you know we we sort of process stuff we work stuff out in our dreams and if you can't you know if your sleep is interrupted to the point that you're not able to dream that interferes with some of that kind of mental reshuffling or whatever it is that goes on i mean i suppose i don't know whether we to to the extent to which people do fully understand how dreams affect us and how they work and so on. But that's certainly a, a theory about it. The other thing, though, that it makes me wonder is, you know, with some of these stories, is there an element of a test of character in there as well? So, 
you know, the idea that how someone behaves is sort of being monitored or something. It's not just about information. It's not just about kind of imparting a, a lesson necessarily. It feels like a trial that he has to go through somehow. It does feel, and particularly when you have the kind of spiritual language of the prophets and so on, it does feel almost like, is this a kind of test of character? Is this about sort of pushing someone to the brink um, and seeing what do we find out about that person? What does it reveal about them? Now, I'm not really sure what it does reveal about Cisco. Um, or what it reveals about Benny, but it's an interesting one. And I mean, I said earlier that the, the you know, the kind of antecedent for all this maybe was Alice in Wonderland. And I, I think it is in terms of the kind of the, not, not quite pulling the rug out from under you because Alice in Wonderland obviously is such a bizarre fancy. It's, it's clearly not happening in reality on some level. So the revelation that it's all a dream doesn't, isn't such a huge surprise. It kind of, rationally makes sense. Um, but another interesting, uh, example might be the, um, play Life is a Dream by Calderon, which was a, I think, 17th century, maybe 16th, 17th century Spanish play, uh, which is all about this king who locks up his son in a tower because of a prophecy that says he's, he's going to destroy him or whatever. And then as a way of sort of testing whether the prophecy is, is going to be true or not, he allows him to sort of be free for a day. Um, on the understanding that he's dreaming, that he's kind of dreaming. So, so it's this weird idea where someone is, is told that they're dreaming when in fact they're awake, um, as a way of sort of seeing how they're, how they'll react. And as a kind of, I suppose, as a sort of that idea of the dream as a test of character. I guess you get that, not as a test of character, but that idea of telling someone they're dreaming. Um, there's that brilliant line in Death Wish where, you know, Q has summoned all these characters to Voyager to take part in his sort of uh, tribunal or whatever. Um, and I think it's the kind of hippie-ish character from, uh, Woodstock who's, who's kind of struggling with it. And Janeway tries to explain it all to him saying, you know, you've been transported, or maybe it's Isaac Newton. I can't remember one or the other of them. She, and she's saying, you know, you've been transported across the universe to this starship in the future and so on. And they're just looking at her blankly. And she says, you're having a very strange dream. <laughs> Basically, don't try and make sense of this. Just forget about it. You'll wake up soon enough. It'll all be gone. Uh, just accept this is not you know, this is not reality and we'll kind of take it from there. Um, so I suppose there's that sort of interesting question of, you know, if someone, once you realise you're in a dream, I mean, A, do you try and wake up? Some people, you know, get into lucid dreaming and kind of controlling the dream and so on. But how do you, how do you react? And, and maybe there is an element there of, you know, again, going back to Alice in Wonderland, the mirror universe and going into a different you know, if you're in, the, how do you behave in the mirror universe? Cisco in the mirror universe goes and sleeps with Dax like his first night there. I mean, you know, what are the kind of rules if you're, if you're in this sort of fantasy? It's not a fantasy world. It is a, you know, a reality, but it's a different reality where everything is kind of altered. It, the mirror universe is almost like a sort of nightmarish version of Star Trek. It is almost like a kind of bad dream. Um, and I suppose there's this sort of question, you know, how do people respond? How do people behave? in these different scenarios. And often that's one of the things that Star Trek is kind of interested in. If you think of the inner light, really it's about, you know, how does Picard behave as a man with a family and very different priorities and a very different sort of life experience? You, you know, what happens if you drop him into that, I was going to say that reality, but that sort of apparent reality. Um, and how does that change? How, how does how how does someone behave differently? And also, how does that experience change them? And I suppose, you know, maybe the experience of going through Far Beyond the Stars does change Captain Sisko. Um, 
through having gone through that, just as the inner light, obviously, we know changes Captain Picard because he talks about it later. And it obviously is, you know, it sort of affects his character going forward. Dare I say it, almost 18 minutes in, I, one of the perfect, perhaps, dream, quote unquote, kind of scenarios you can imagine where we see how people react is something like the Nexus, um, where you see someone like Soren you know, spending decades trying to get back into that dreamlike state, you know, whether it's with his family or the people that were, you know, taken away from the Borg or kind of Kirk and Picard, you know, Picard with his Victorian fantasy, Kirk scrambling eggs and how quickly they are to sort of go, we don't want this universe. Whereas you see someone like Soren determined to get there and, you know, blowing up stars to to achieve it. Well, there's an interesting element there, isn't there, of how real, how real do you want your dream to be? I quite like that aspect of generations that it, the way the dreams play out, the way that, for example, in Kirk's dream, you know, you walk through a door and it doesn't lead to the room that you expect. It kind of, do you know what I mean? He, he walks through the bedroom door and finds himself in the stable or whatever it is, you, you know, and it can kind of, it sort of follows dream logic. Um, and you can, I feel like it plays quite well in a way with, with Kirk anyway, it plays quite well. You can see the appeal of that fantasy, but also the sort of unreality of it. And you get it with this sense that, you know, there's no risk uh, in there and he can do the jump and he doesn't feel anything and so on. Um, obviously with Picard, it fails miserably, I think, because the fantasy that they give him is so, uh, it doesn't, like he deserves better. Do you know what I mean? He deserves a better fantasy life. We think, you know, knowing Picard as we do, it feels so, uh, sort of stayed and boring and kind of the, 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 the least appealing side of Picard somehow is what comes out in the fantasy. I always think it's a shame we don't see Soren's fantasy. You know, what is it that he was longing to get back to? Because obviously Kirk was quite seduced by his fantasy. Picard was seduced by his for about five minutes. Um, Soren is so seduced by his that he just will do anything to get back to it. So what, you know, what was it? What was guidance? I mean, I don't know. I kind of think it's a shame we don't we don't get to see enough of what these very seductive dream experiences are. Because obviously Star Trek, you know, even going all the way back to the cage, you've got Pike's fantasies in the cage about, you know, picnicking with, uh, you know, having a girl and a horse and a picnic and all this, <laughs> this sort of thing. You know, what it, what is it that these captains dream of? And we sort of want it, I think it's tricky because we sort of want their fantasy to be something that we can engage with. And our fantasy is Star Trek. You know, we, we want the fantasy to be Star Trek. And they, when they have these fantasies, they're invariably quite disappointing for the audience because they're rather mundane and boring in a weird way. They're less dramatic than anything else that happens. The inner light, I think it works because although that is true, it really does give us a sort of insight into Picard and it shows us a different side of his character. And it's, again, it's played very real. You know, it, it works as a drama because all those characters are kind of imbued with, uh, kind of gravity and reality and, and given the sort of time that they need for that episode to work to feel like it means something. But it's a tricky one to know sort of how to do that and how, how you, you know, how do you, how do you cast the fantasy in a way that it feels real? And I suppose that is part of what storytelling is, isn't it? You know, that, that is what any story is. It is kind of presenting fiction as you know, we take it as real, even as much as we know that it can't be real. Uh, you know, we, we kind of have to buy into it at some level. Yeah, exactly. And I think that buy-in, whether it's kind of as a, a viewer in terms of visual-wise, kind of writing-wise, or kind of creating a gripping story, whether it's something like Far Beyond the Stars or Barge of the Dead, where it doesn't really matter how we got there. 
you know, they'll become classic episodes that people are discussing and enjoying, or else they'll become episodes where it could be the Dallas episode where it's like, I can't believe they did that, or the vanishing point where, God, is that really the kind of the twist of the episode? I think it, that's, I think it always just hitches on how engaging you can make it. And, you know, audiences will let you away with murder that, okay, yeah, sure, I can imagine a little kid alien creates a fantasy enterprise D for, for Riker to play jazz. And yeah, sure, I'll go with that. You know, it, 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 it asks the audience a lot, but, you know, it's amazing what an audience will give you when it comes to science fiction in terms of attention and approval. If you've kind of, taken them along for the ride if you've yeah satisfied them and yet again you know coming back to the search why is it that that trick fails so kind of markedly i mean you know i don't know it's a weird one isn't it because it is enjoyable all that stuff about the treaty and all the drama and you know what's going on in the alpha quadrant and you know uh the romulans being shafted and all that it all feels you know, it is quite exciting. And maybe that's part of the problem is they made it too exciting and they didn't, um, they didn't sort of realise that people would buy into it. That's kind of what it sounds like from the way Iris Stephen Bear describes it is he sort of wanted to play a trick on the audience, but it's almost like the trick that goes wrong because you, uh, you, you know, like if you're trying to play a prank on someone, but they take it more seriously than you expected them to. Do you know what I mean? And somehow the prank doesn't work because actually, maybe you've kind of really upset them or maybe you've kind of really disturbed them or, you know, you've kind of like, it's gone a bit too far. It's like, oh, you know, okay, we thought this was just a game and actually we've, you know, it, it turned out people were taking it a bit more seriously somehow. It's um, it's kind of gone, it's gone a bit too far somehow. It's gone further than we expected. And it's weird that in, you know, half of a two-part story where it's only even one of the two plot strands that that can be such a problem. But it, I, I think part of it is because it feels, it's, it's the way... If it was just a single episode, that might be one thing, but it's the way it continues from part one. And as you said, part one is such a great story and such a great kind of bit of DS9 world building. Um, and it tricks you by appearing to be part two of that story, which would have been great, actually. You know, lots of us would probably have loved to see that and then not giving you that. But because you've invested the first 45 minutes in watching, you know, part one, it kind of, it makes the switch even more frustrating somehow because it's you know it's it's not even just that episode that's being sort of unwritten it's it almost feels like they're it almost it feels like they're unwriting the first half when in fact they're not because the whole of the first half did happen and all that stuff sticks but somehow it feels like the whole thing gets thrown out the window yeah it's 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 a frustrating kind of one isn't it i suppose we're so used to when they do the two-par by and large on deep space nine we think of like the finales where it's like you set something up and it just moves things all around the chessboard. It's not about how do we get out of this kind of wiggle our way out of this. It's like, right, how are we going to start the next season? And it's sort of interesting that they take this kind of approach, which is quite different to how they've opened other seasons. Well, however we feel about it, this is obviously a trope that is very pervasive in, in culture, in literature, in particularly in TV and film. I, I think TV especially because I suppose it, it, you know, it does link to this sort of idea of the, of the reset button, which is something that Voyager in particular gets sort of very much charged with um, an episodic TV in particular, I, I guess, you know, maybe part of it, this idea of the, the, the dream and the reality and so on, it does link a little bit to these um, issues around serialization versus kind of episodic storytelling. The idea that a story is kind of self-contained and gets, you know, in the era of episodic storytelling, 
there's a reset button every week to some extent because nothing ever carries over. If you look at like the original series, you can show those episodes in almost any order and it doesn't make any difference. Um, so in a way, it's easy to say, oh, this never happened or that never happened. And of course, with Star Trek, I mean, actually, you mentioned we're recording on the day that Lower Decks uh, debuts in the United States. Um, for years, the animated series, people would just say, oh, yeah, that didn't happen. You, you know, the kind of canon status of it was sort of in question. Were these just stories? Were these kind of myths? Uh, you know, there was kind of that. I think there's even a joke in Voyager about some of the stuff that supposedly happened on the original series you know, whether it's like the big green hand or, or whatever, some of the more strange stuff that we almost sort of, um, we kind of like to pretend that Star Trek exists in this quite realistic world. And yet there are lots of things within Star Trek that are very unrealistic and a bit kind of mad and bonkers and, and wacky and so on. And so I suppose this idea of like the dream and the reality, you do sort of see that playing out a little bit with, you know, what's canon, what isn't canon, what what do we accept as real, what do we not accept as real. And Lower Decks, I feel like, just like the animated series did, there's a danger of slightly pushing that boundary of sort of slightly making people feel slightly uncomfortable. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the first episode um, that we got today. I thought it was a lot of fun. But there is, I suppose, a slight sense of like, obviously Star Trek can be playful and silly and do comedy episodes and so on. But how far can you push the sort of reality envelope? How far can you kind of, um, how sort of wacky can you go before you start to endanger that willing suspension of disbelief? Um, because it's a universe which is at one level, or which is, it's a universe which is both very open creatively and kind of can do all sorts of things. Some of them, quite off the wall and wacky in various ways, but also it's remarkably well tied together. You know, it is a, uh, for a franchise of, you know, whatever it is, 800 plus hours, it's the continuity is, is pretty strong. I mean, obviously there are issues here and there, but you know, broadly speaking, it all does hang together and there's been so much effort put into making it feel real. It's the ultimate dream that's been carefully constructed to make it feel as real as possible. So you can almost go and live in it and, believe somehow that you know as cisco keeps saying it's real it's real you know uh on one level it does feel real obviously we know it's not real but we buy into the reality of it that's that's a function of all fiction but it's particularly with star trek when it gets to like canon and this is canon and this isn't canon this is believable physics and this is you know the, the level of detail that goes into it and the level of you know is cetacean ops a real thing well you know in lower decks they're talking about cetacean ops we've had cetacean ops kind of sort of glancingly mentioned in next gen but we never quite really acknowledge is there really a cetacean ops with dolphins and whales and things or is that just a sort of silly in joke um you know there are these that, that's kind of one of these elements of like the the realism of star trek that it's sort of toying with something and so far has never quite gone there now, if they go and spend an episode in Station Ops in Lower Decks, we kind of have to accept it's become a little bit more real than it was before, maybe. And I think it's one of these ones, ultimately, that when we've, we spoke about this, like it's, it's dreams in this episode. How many of them actually ultimately are dreams that it's such a tricky one to fall down that we have had, you know, Ion storms causing things, little alien, creepy alien kids, prophets and pirates, so many other different kind of things. And we could almost kind of go down a barrel of is the holodeck sort of dream like kind of scenarios brought to life. It's, it's interesting. As you say, Star Trek is mad and crazy. And even sort of their quote unquote trope about dreams, um, 
is very much sort of slightly different from that. It's sometimes bonkers, sometimes crazy, sometimes painfully dull in sort of its execution, but it's something that you could go down a hell of a rabbit hole um, and I think we've kind of only probably just scraped the surface of how many um, episodes could almost fall under this trope if we were, were being ultra creative. Absolutely. And I mean, this it, ultimately it becomes a sort of topic for Metatrex, I think, about kind of reality and, and unreality in Star Trek. And that's something that obviously the franchise is very, uh, you, you know, explores quite a lot. I guess what you don't ever get, although I suppose what Iris Stephen Bear was wanting to do with the DS9 finale would have touched on that is these kind of real total reality breaking gestures like you get in sort of postmodern fiction or with Red Dwarf for example they did this I think they did an episode of Red Dwarf didn't they where they did they realize they were in a TV show all I remember is they were walking around the set of Coronation Street and so on so these kind of episodes that sort of totally break the the fiction to some extent um as much as Star Trek might tease and toy with these things and it might, you know, it might toy with the idea maybe Cisco's a figment of a 1950s sci-fi writer's imagination, it's never really going to come down on that side because ultimately too much is invested in the reality of the Star Trek universe by this point. As much as there were inconsistencies, you know, all the way through and continuity issues, so much is invested in the idea of making that feel real and believable and kind of coherent that we're not there's a limit to maybe how playful Star Trek's going to get with those kind of uh, sort of dreamlike questions. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Like ultimately, the universe is so big and wild. I mean, that's as as we're saying we, we're speaking on the day of a brand new TV series launching that you can ultimately make up anything within the Star Trek world to explore racism, to explore overcoming fears. You know parental anxiety you know so many different things that we see explored in these dreams you know spy scenarios you name it there's always something that they can use in sort of this amazing kind of universe they're not limited by sort of this plain old simple world we live in where if we want to imagine being spies or having mr Worf sitting at the operations um panel we just have to sleep it and hope that that's our dream whereas in star trek anything can can happen for sometimes better or worse Anything's possible. And especially once you get into multiverses and parallel universes and so on, everything's not only possible, but, you know, it seems to be happening somewhere or other. Um, well, it's been a pleasure, Lee, uh, going down this particular rabbit hole with you. Before you go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you online if they want to listen to more of your thoughts uh, or pick you up on, on some of these issues and tell you why Vanishing Point is their favourite episode of Enterprise? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Lee Hutchison underscore. You can find me on two podcasts, Filibuster, which is a general kind of film and pop culture podcast, and also the A24 Project, which has featured Trek alumni like Anton Yelchin and Patrick Stewart as a Nazi. So, yeah, plenty to uh, plenty of Star Trek crossover, even in sort of indie cinema. Now, there's a nightmare scenario, if ever there was one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Patrick Stewart as a Nazi hunting down poor Anton Yelchin. Now, that's, a, that's definitely a nightmare. <laughs> That's not a holodeck simulation we're likely to see on Star Trek anytime soon, I suspect, even in, you know, Picard in its in its darkest moments. Um, well, it's been a pleasure, Lee, but uh, talking about dreams and reality and uh, when we can't tell the difference between the two is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So have a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Like you're saying about JL... 
I remember at the time reading this, Rafi calling him JL. And I remember that feeling weird to me. Like you, the first time it was in the comic. And then I was like, JL, that's kind of casual. But like you said, she kind of talks to that. And But now rereading it, when I got to that, it just makes so much sense because I'm used to it now. It just seems so natural. But at the time, it felt a little odd. Earl Grey. This is that McCoy is still alive. Mm-hmm. And he goes and picks up McCoy. And Scotty and McCoy have adventures throughout the galaxy in their own run no, Then they go and find the Nexus and get and get <laughs> Kirk back. And it's the three of them that go... Uh, and they go to Romulus, of course, as well, to help out Spock with reunification. Yeah. And then they go to the Genesis planet, because obviously there's remnants of it after it blew up, and they find some Spock DNA, and they use some Borg maturation chamber to make themselves a mini Spock. But it goes wrong, so Spock is only, like, six inches tall. <laughs> Pocket spot. And And McCoy can put him in his pocket all the time. And Lyra Bay's. McCoy loves that. He's got a wee kind of lapel pocket. Yeah, I like this. A breast pocket. We'll call him Spocket. Spocket. Spocket (laughs) in McCoy's pocket. Uh, I like that. Okay. Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. That whole title sort of feels like the the beginnings of what Roddenberry would do with, with Q and having all those play on Q basically yeah. which I think I think had exactly. you had Mud come back you know more it's almost a shame that Discovery hasn't picked up that and and when they had Here Harry Mud in yeah <laughs> exactly they should have done that they resisted the temptation for the cheap I mean that is as I say there is always a temptation with these things to go for the cheap pun uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the right decision to, to resist. I don't know. I, um, I think a cheap pun is the right call every time, Duncan, to be honest. The ready room. What does it mean to be artificial? And when you cross that barrier from being biological mm-hmm. to being artificial, but your your memories have been transferred, how much of who you are is the memory that you acquire over the course of your life and how much of it is the biological system of your body. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. 
You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended already.